Welcome back to Say Who Say Pod, everybody. He's Danny O'Neill. I'm Christian Capel. Back, dare I say, uh, as if we never left. Are we back like we never left? Yeah. It's like we left. We're, we're back like we left for two weeks and then came back. I don't know if much has changed. Still no Pac-12 media deal, right? No, they are still awaiting consummation. <laughs> <laughs> it's got hilarious a, at this Got point. a month. Media day is a month from today. Uh, as we record this, a, mo- a month minus a day as-, as you're listening to it on Thursday. So they've got to have it done by then, right? Like if they Absolutely don't. Absolutely must. Absolutely uh, must. You can't not have it done by then. And we had we had San Diego State. <laughs> Did they actually tell their conference they might be leaving? Like that's un- it's, it's unclear. They're saying it was not uh, formal notification. <laughs> The Mountain West appears to have interpreted as such. There were a lot of letters going back and forth. So the best I could see is that San Diego State tried to give them a wink and a nudge, like just so you know we're looking around. And the Mountain well, West is, well, if you're looking around, you're out of here. It was that, and I mean, according to multiple outlets who have reported on this, The Athletic and ESPN <laughs> primarily, it was like, hey, um... Could we like give different notice and maybe make that payment in multiple installments, possibly? Because um, we think we're gonna leave. Um, <laughs> not this con- totally this, sure, but just if we, yeah, if we did, if we if we were to decamp for another Division One athletics conference, uh, mostly in the Pacific time zone say sometime in the next year what would that look what would the shape of that be financially <laughs> and and the 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 conference is like the mountain west basically said to him like you can't flirt when you're married right like yeah. if, if you're gonna leave then we'll talk about the arrangements of how you're gonna leave but we're not going to test drive your departure for you you either got to Either do it or don't, but we've got yeah. things to do. To quote Bo Burnham, uh, and also no to the things you asked for. <laughs> that, was a, that was essentially the response. Um, I just, I enjoy they had to send three letters in a day. And in, in this wild media rights process, like anytime somebody actually puts something in writing and it's distributed to a number of people who uh, have no reason not to share it with media folks they might know. Um, yeah, people are going to seize on that. Very little concrete information in this whole story. So yeah, when it, when when it's an email or a letter and it's in writing and it's signed by the university president, that's that's gonna that's gonna get seized on and become a story for sure. Well, the reason they're doing it is in preparation for the lawsuits. Like the lawyers are going to get paid in this process. In fact, the lawyer next to the TV executives, the lawyers might benefit the most from these conference uh, shenanigans. Yeah, that's uh, that's how it, it always is, just in all mm-hmm. facets of life, right? It's always good to be a lawyer, I think, financially and and work wise. Um, I don't know. Are you? Uh, it kind of it kind of seems like if the Pac-12 were to stay together, moving forward with the current ten is like the least likely scenario. It's felt that way for a while. That. At the very least, they would need to add San Diego State. Um, John Canzano's done some interesting reporting around SMU these last few days. And, and Danny, <laughs> can I, I'm, can I, I'm can I can I'm I summarize? You, can yeah, I summarize yeah. John's reporting? <laughs> they sure are rich. They got a lot of money. <laughs> I'm glad you're seated right now to to hear this portion of it. But it it appears as if a booster in the oil industry may may just be involved in some of these discussions i know you'll find that very very surprising the the only surprise i had is that he did not appear to have uh, a a middle name attached to his like how he's referred to as like he's not he's not similar to jim bob cooter like it was a very understated oil magnate name like i assumed at the very least if you're an oil magnate you use an initial in in lieu of a first name but this guy seemed to be very he seemed he seemed to be very normally like his nomenclature was was quite normal david miller is this yeah it's boring it could be anybody yeah it doesn't sound like a bond villain at all what the hell are we doing 
when does one became become a magnate? I I'm not sure. <laughs> it also is only in specific industries. Like you can be a shipping magnate. Yeah. <laughs> well, or a, tele- a a television magnate. But you very rarely, you very rarely hear about someone. I, 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 I don't know. Being a restaurant magnate is that is is that a thing? Like, is do you get attached to having multiple restaurants? You're a magnate. It certainly seems possible. Usually yeah. in the oil business, you're a baron, right? Baron, yeah, yes, yeah, oil baron, yeah. I'm no magnate. I'm a I'm a baron. <laughs> I haven't been a magnate in years. What do you, What do you think about SMU? I, I don't think it fits culturally, but I'm I'm past the point of looking for a logical sort of solution to this. I kind of have accepted this is the course that it's going to go. They're going to expand. Um, I don't know if they'll be around for another TV deal after this, the, the a West Coast conference as we know it. Um, where it's clearly it's it's clearly a step above, like as part of. The Power Five is going away, right? There's going to be the big two, and then there's going to be that next tier of three. I don't know if the next round of media rights that a Pacific Coast Conference will be clearly in that sort of second tier. Um, I think it's a foregone conclusion. Boise State makes much more sense to me from a sports perspective, but all of these, I don't know whether it's some sort of decision or insistence upon holding on to academics as a viable part of this like as if it means anything to me i don't think it does um but boise state makes much more sense to me than smu but for a lot of different reasons that don't matter to me smu is going to be involved it's a different tv market and they have a oil magnate you gotta you just you gotta be excited about the prospect of of adding a school um with the history of paying its players to the Pac-12. I don't mind that part. Yeah, they want to be out front on NIL. I, I want to encourage. That's one of... There are a number of 30 for 30s that are really good. The one on the Pony Express is oh, fantastic. standing, isn't it? Because they get to this point where they, they're good, they've agreed to stop cheating. Like, they've basically been told, you guys have to stop this. You can't pay players. And the businessmen basically agree to it, but say... We've got to finish out these contracts with the guys that are on the team now. Otherwise, they can sue us. Like, that's that's how formalized the process was, was that there was a legitimate feeling among among the people that were cheating. And then they shut the whole thing down and and then basically decided they would never do that again. In, I mean, it's one of the best examples of, you had phrased it before, USC does something really bad and the Pac-12 punishes the hell out of Washington State, right? Like, that that the programs that get shuttered and get that level of, of of pain subjected to them are not the Cadillac programs because the because the college sports apparatus doesn't it's not going to kill like the main revenue producers for it it's going to take them it's like okay you guys you guys got a little froggy and stepped outside your place you tried to hop the line University of Houston is going to consistently get bombed on by by the NCAA because they're like, yeah, you guys, you guys just are a little too brazen with it. Yeah, I, well, I just hope Miami's uh, women's basketball program recovers from the sanctions that they received. Their coach, <laughs> dude, there was a story about that last week that bothered I me. Saw, I saw it. Yeah, it. Yeah, I probably need to stop letting stuff bother me that it does. But like, what is? <laughs> It was the the story, and people that don't know it, Barry Weiss has a, it's called the Free Press, and uh, a guy who used to cover the NBA wrote about it. If you're going to write, I'll just say this, if you're going to write about NIL, you have to understand that the NCAA versus Alston ruling that was ruled on in the Supreme Court doesn't have anything to do with NIL. Like, that should be like a bare threshold. Like, if you don't get that, because there was a passage in there that showed that the reporter really didn't understand, like, one of the two most prominent Supreme Court rulings regarding amateurism, like, fundamentally didn't understand it, you shouldn't be writing about it. It was saying that you can't impose a salary cap of there's no salary, you just get a scholarship, was essentially what the ruling said. 
Um, it didn't have anything to do with NIL. Tough week. Uh, another tough week. I'm probably won't be the last one, but uh, tough week at the athletic last week was uh, yeah was getting in line at uh, airport security at SeaTac. My wife and I went to San Francisco for a few nights uh, for vacation and saw Ben Strauss from the Washington Post, uh, who's out front with a lot of news about the athletic, much to the chagrin of some of the higher ups there. That's a story for another day. Um, was first to report and then obviously became became very public not long after that, that the athletic laid off another 20 staffers, mostly writers, I believe, if not all writers, not positive about that. Um, and announced publicly, Danny, something that I, I think has become pretty obvious to folks um, who subscribe or read or have kind of followed the company, which is that they're shifting away from, you know, diligent, dutiful local coverage. They'll still have local, local coverage of certain teams. It's really just about who drives clicks and, um, you know, which, which audiences show up in mass to read every story. Um, and we'll focus more regionally and nationally in certain sports. So, among those cuts, unfortunately, was another writer in Seattle, Corey Brock, who'd covered the Seattle Mariners since 2018 for The Athletic. Um, so no more Mariners coverage. In addition to no more Huskies coverage, one time they had Sounders coverage. Don't have that anymore. At one time had some Seattle Storm coverage. Um, that's gone away. It's just our pal Michael Sean Dugar covering the Seahawks now in Seattle. And that's it. And it's wild because... When The Athletic launched, this is maybe some like kind of boring insider look, but it was centered around cities, right? Mm -hmm. And externally, they marketed like The Athletic Seattle, The Athletic Bay Area. It started in Chicago and I want to say Toronto. Chicago and Toronto were their first two markets. Um, and that was kind of how it was structured. So it was sold to people as, look, you know, we've got this person on the major league baseball team in town and this person covering the NFL or the NBA or the local college football team, whatever it was, they restructured away from that, at least internally, it might not have been as apparent externally. Um, it was kind of weird because I always reported to like a national college football editorial staff and wasn't really part of the, what was going on in Seattle. Um, even though I you know, knew those guys and it was in communication with them a lot. They ended up re reorganizing um, how reporters reported to their editors company-wide that way. So it became by sport instead of by city. And that maybe should have been the first sign that like the local element wasn't quite as important. That it, it sent the message that everybody is to think about how they fit and how their coverage fits within the sport they cover rather than within the market, the local market that they're in. Um you know, getting rid of their Washington football and Virginia Tech football and Florida football writers and having their Oregon writer leave and not be replaced and their Oklahoma writer leave and not be replaced and moving their Tennessee writer to a national role and not replacing him, laying off during the pandemic, their Boise State and Auburn and Arkansas and Texas writers and not replacing any of them, I think sent the message pretty clearly that local um, you know, team beat coverage was not as much of a priority in certain markets. And um, they've, they've basically come out and said now that it's really just the NFL on a team by team basis and um, English soccer on a team by team basis that, uh, that actually makes sense for them to staff. So that, that doesn't mean, I mean, they still have, you know, they still cover many NBA and MLB teams and, you know, good 10 or 12 college football teams still, but um, it's a, it's too bad because that's that's kind of what the company was founded on this idea that that they were going to have you know elite national coverage, which I think they still do, and also try to be the local sports page in every major market in the country eventually. And for a while, I think they accomplished that certainly better than anyone who'd ever attempted that sort of thing before, if anybody ever had. Um, but uh, it just seems like good things don't last, you know? The, the most interesting thing to me about the athletics initiative when it started was the strategy it used. And you can correct me if, if I'm wrong, because clearly I'm on the outside and this is just my observer hat, was they identified specifically 
soccer and the NHL as what were underserved markets of fans in places in, in bigger cities. And that there were enough fans of NHL teams like say the San Jose Sharks, like that there was that were not having their needs met at all by the the local newspaper that it created a business opportunity and that was kind of seen as a beachhead. So that was the formula where the first expansions of that of that template started. It sped up really quickly in large part because there was some success, there was some excitement, and it was a venture capital project. So when you get buzz like that, there is a tendency and and there's an incentive to expand very fast. And it, it did expand very fast using that that mold. And then there was sort of the aggressive, I, what, I, what I consider sort of the fast growing phase of a startup when it's like, all right, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna try to sort of be the first on this path. We're gonna try to become so big that other people don't try to enter this this same path because we're so big and you're going to have to compete with us and we're going to poach all the writers we can from local newspapers um, because we've got it. And as it matured as a business, whether that was not viable to, to be sort of your local city's sports page, whether it was not remunerative enough for the investors who have they don't just want a stable business that makes ends meet. They're they're seeking they're seeking return on their investment. Or just the 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 fact that they created and building something that they then sold to the New York Times for half a billion dollars. In in that way, what they built worked, right? Like it 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 worked because the valuation of what they ended up selling, but as a day-to-day business, I think what you're seeing is that there's a recalculation that as a day-to-day business, and is this going to be profitable, and when is it going to be profitable, which is a different question than how much something is valued at, they have changed and they've gone down a path that pretty much, there are numerous sites that have started up in the world of sports journalism that have followed this exact same path, whether it's Sports Illustrated, whether it's Vox, SB Nation, like there's there's all these businesses that have done this. We're going hyper local. We're going to get super big. Uh oh, we need to return on it. Now we're gonna we're gonna dial back and we're gonna focus on the things that get the most traction. And you're like, I've seen the story before. The the, the depressing part is for the people who make the content. Like that's that's the really and then the second part of that is the people who want the content that those people are making because these are in my mind it there is a, a viable customer base that's there for people who want coverage of their local teams. And that kind of time after time seems to be going by the wayside and I feel extremely bad for Corey. I like Corey a great deal. I think Corey does a great job. I feel bad for Mariners fans who, I mean, there are not that many beat reporters left that are that are there on a day-to-day basis. That's everybody's loss. I saw what you wrote, Christian, at onmontlake.com, what the staffing situation in the Husky football team looked like when you got there and what it looks like now where in terms of legacy media publications the seattle times is is the only publication that has a daily beat writer that's still there and that's shocking because 15 years ago that number's 5 maybe even 6 and that's not to say there's the only source of coverage because there are other including on montlake.com which you su- should subscribe to if you're not already but it's 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 a bummer and and I also feel like it's the it that the rise and and sort of re pivot follows a formula that I've seen countless times over the past fifteen years. Yeah, I I think you nailed it all. Um, one the only slight uh, clarification I'd add is when it very very first started, it was NHL and Major League Baseball. Oh, it was MLB, but soccer. I mean, when 
So I, I forget exactly when they launched in the UK. Um, I want to say it was like late 2019, maybe it instantly became a very, very, very big deal to the company. It instantly overshadowed a lot else that the company was doing like internally because it was so popular and it drove so much subscription growth. Uh, so the, the British GQ actually did like a huge story in it published March 2nd, 2020. So like literally basically two weeks before the world shut down. Um, huge story on the athletics efforts to uh, recruit and hi- hire the, the top soccer riders in the UK. So it was, it, I mean, it was a very big deal that they went over there and they kind of did the same thing that, that, you know, Alex Mather proclaimed famously to the New York times many years ago that they wanted to do to, to newspapers in, in America and um, attracted some, some pretty big names. So it did. You're absolutely right that that English soccer, um, they did see the opportunity there and probably always had plans to expand and, and pull that off. Um, but at first, it, you know, their their first few city sites and writers they were trying to hire, it was very focused on NHL and on Major League Baseball. So it's it's too bad to see them part ways with with so many baseball writers. Yeah, it's a bummer. And I was even thinking that it was more U.S. soccer. That the that MLS teams were a huge emphasis of it, but you're right as far as the the lynch the linchpin of. And there's part of me that wonders if by identifying the NFL and and English Premier League as their two major sort of pushes, I don't think there's very much overlap between those two groups of fans. I was actually talking to my brother about this. My brother is a supporter of of Leeds United, which just got relegated. <laughs> Which I love. If there's one thing we should import, it's relegation. Like I'm Just all on board. TV show. What's the rele, relegation would be fantastic. It would fix so many things about the uh, about U.S. sports. Like so many things would be solved if we had relegation. But my brother was asking. He's like, how many NFL fans are English Premier League fans? And I was like, there are some. But I would say that there's the least amount of overlap in that sport. Like you're more likely to have someone who's an NBA fan and an English Premier fan than someone who likes an NFL team and, and likes the English Premier League. Um, that and and in fact, a lot of NFL fans are like hostile to soccer. Like it's there. There's it, it. When I worked at the radio, it wasn't that people weren't interested in soccer. It was that they were actively hostile. And if you brought it up, they would change the channel. Like it wasn't like other things where you're like, I just don't want to hear about this. Cause you'll get that with college football. Like, I don't care about the Huskies. I don't want to hear about the Huskies, but you wouldn't get the moment you mention the Huskies. I am changing the channel like with teeth gnashing anger. And you get that with, <laughs> with soccer. Um, so there's part of me that thought maybe that is they've identified like those are two pools that they're their tent poles because there's not much overlap between the two of them. But I don't, I don't, I don't really know. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's just, it's bad, man. It's, I've cared a lot about sports journalism. Um, I've spent a great deal of time, um, as, as you have working in it and watching this and I don't have some sort of, <sighs> I'm not naive about that it happens where jobs go away. Like their blacksmiths stopped being a thing when cars came around. And I recognize that like there's nothing particularly unique about this little occupational tragedy that is sports writing or being a sports reporter, but it's happened. It it's a freaking wasteland out there. And it's not to say that there aren't people doing good work in good outposts, but by and large what we've understood is the sports journalism industry is it's painful right now. It's painful because the conversations that go on are some weird caricature of what debate is supposed to be. I saw this morning where Stephen A. Smith was telling Damian Lillard that he needs to leave Portland. I was like, what sort of weird world do we live in where that's like a take? Where like, yeah, you, you, need, to, you need to go somewhere else. Like, it's, it's a strange... And and people that have and the attempts to do thoughtful what I would consider journalism that's reminiscent of what I think of as the best of the profession have you've seen very few instances in which that has produced uh, an instant a, a viable sort of 
institution that perseveres and continues and holds to its commitment to provide that kind of journalism. It's hard to market something. And when I say market, I just mean like the way that you uh, disseminate it on social media that you, you know, it's, it's maybe it's a little bit longer. It's, it's nuanced. It's, it's examining a topic or attempting to answer a question, but not necessarily in broad strokes, not necessarily in black and white terms. Because social media wants everything to be black and white and yeah. wants everything to be, is this good or bad? Who, who is the winner and who is the loser? And, you know, you, you want the story boiled down to something that you can slap on a graphic in big, bold letters and, you know, ooh, what it take. And it's frustrating because that, even in like, quote unquote, mainstream journalism, that's how you're taught to write headlines and sell stories now. And it's not even just about the headline. And it's not, you know, some of that is like, okay, if I, if I got to word this a certain way to get people to read it, I know that there's going to be payoff. So fine. But I don't know. It's, it's like, almost like you have to trick people into reading something thoughtful, you know, mm-hmm. like there's, a, there is a portion, you know, always going to be a portion of every fan base that does crave that sort of thing. But I, I feel like to bring in new readers or, you know, to appeal to somebody who doesn't already follow you or doesn't already subscribe to my site or, or whatever, um, you, you need to, you need to like play to this baser instinct on social media at least, or it's like, Oh, like if it's presented as like, Oh, this complex examination of an issue, it's like, okay, but who's, you know, who can I dunk on? You know, yeah. who's, who's the loser in this? Who can I be mad at? Or who can I think is the best person ever? Yeah. I think I'm going to quit Twitter. Like I'm not sure of it yet, but I'm, I'm certainly spending less time on there. Um, this what you just brought up feels reminiscent of the conclusion I reached last week. We'd mentioned the story from the free press on the Cavender twins. And the, the story's premise was that the NCAA has a quote, hot girl problem. And that the NCAA's problem is that the NIL sort of rules that the the or the industry that it's opened up the, the opportunities the the business opportunities that it it's opened up for female athletes are disproportionately determined by the appearance of the athletes that there's a gymnast from LSU who's gotten a lot of attention Libby Dunn for how much money she has earned in part because of a very popular TikTok account uh, as well as the Cavender twins who are basketball players they played at Fresno State and then they went to Miami and that Basically, and he, the the author even used the phrase like blondes with button noses being able to captivate and command these wide audiences and then capitalize on it in NIL. And that's not probably what was either designed or hoped for. Male athletes, the, the presumption of the story was male athletes' NIL compensation is more closely related to their athletic ability as opposed to female athletes whose compensation maybe end up end up being more closely correlated with their physical appearance, which is problematic for all the reasons that are obvious. When the story was written, and there are flaws in that story, starting with the framing, which is that by focusing on these two athletes, they're essentially blamed for the system and the societal biases that they're profiting from. Like if you're going to critique that system, the the fact that women athletes who are deemed or who are conventionally beautiful are being compensated or earning at a higher level than their than 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 you would expect based on their athletic ability, talk about the system. Instead, it basically you become the the critique becomes focused on them, which which I don't think is fair, but. After the story was published, I saw, including uh, Natalie Weiner, who's from Seattle. She's written for a number of different places. She lives in Texas now. She posted a link to a story she did on the issue two years ago. And it's much more nuanced and it's much more uh, better better written. It's like, but that didn't catch on social media the way this free press story did. That, and, and what you're saying 
in that you kind of have to trick people into reading a more balanced. The tools of social media, which are now one of the primary ways that journalists communicate their stories or get their stories out to a reading audience, are biased in favor of specifically framed stories that position a clear bad guy and use anger, sex, use use things that we know are are triggering emotions that are more likely to get people to read. It's it's not an accident and it's not a a, a reflection of the type of article or the quality of the article that the free press story last week on the Cavender Twins generated so much attention whereas Natalie's story from 2 years ago did not. It's because the more thoughtful, balanced critique doesn't activate the emotions the same way that a shoddily done sort of I would I would say questionably framed story does and that should depress the hell out of everybody. You know who does not give any thought to marketability and pays players based strictly on athletic performance or potential for high athletic performance. The morally righteous NIL booster collectives. (laughs) They don't, they, they're not looking at marketability. Yeah. They don't care how popular it's. Hey, the starting quarterback requires a seven-figure payment to remain at our institution, and he's really good at football. Make it happen. Boy, I'll tell you, I cannot wait for some of the things to occur that are going to happen. Can you imagine the first time there is a collective that decides, all right, we're going all in on this year's recruiting class. We're going we're gonna to decide, and it'll probably be at like a, a, a marginal level school. We're not going to give any money to the guys that are already here. All our money is going to go to this huge recruiting class. We're going to have the equivalent of the University of Michigan Fab Five, except they're going to come to a team, and those guys are not going to be the best players. And the amount of hostility that's going to be within those locker rooms, like I do not envy college coaches of having to deal with that part of it, of when you're going to when it's going to be most tempting to use an NIL collective to money whip a kid to come to your school and balance that against the the tension that that could create within the framework of your team i think that's why you you really i think that's why you're you're seeing relatively few like really big deals for high school players and i think there was a panic about that brought about frankly in in part, I think, because of the way the media covered it, the athletic included, that we're, you know, we're reporting on legit deals. Yes. They weren't making things up. They had the contracts reviewed. But the few that get written about, I think, does kind of create an artificial perception that like, oh, it, every top 300 player should expect a six-figure deal from whatever collective they sign with. And if your school's collective isn't willing to do that, they're just not going to sign any blue chip recruits because that's what it takes. And that's just not the truth. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, schools like Washington are very um, intentional about communicating to recruits. Hey, so-and-so at your position who played X amount of snaps or whatever, or has X amount of experience made this much money last year. And isn't that a pretty good amount? And, you know, you could probably expect something similar or more, right? Because, Mm -hmm. ideally at each school the collective grows each year and has more money at its disposal and you're able to pay your players more and more each season um but this this thought that like i mean that's why the Jaden rashada thing was so ridiculous because it was just such an outlandish number and it was a legit number that was a real number people tried to poo-poo the 13 million nope it was that was a real contract, and it, guess what? It was not incentive laden. The athletic got a hold of the deal. I think it was Andy Staples reported it out in detail. They were gonna pay him double digit, you know, eight eight figures over the course of three or four years. It wasn't backloaded. It wasn't contingent on him being an All American. Like he was gonna get a lot of money, and that is not that. That's why it was so ridiculous because it was like okay, we there are there are a handful of players who are more highly thought of than Jaden Rashad. He was a good recruit for sure. And I think Florida would have been pleased to to have him, but um, 
those guys aren't getting that. Nobody's getting that. That's rid- I mean, there are Heisman Trophy candidates who might not be making that much money, you know. So that I, I do think that the the big mega deals you hear about are probably more the exception than the rule, at least coming out of high school. I do think that most people with the kind of money who can make that that type of thing happen are realizing that like the likelihood of return on their investment is much greater if it goes to somebody who's already produced. And also that if it doesn't go to that kid who's already produced, he's going in the portal and someone else is going to give it to him. It's going to be out of there. What you describe, like on the one hand, I'm like, I think that these big money people are smarter than that, but it also only takes one. Yeah. (laughs) It only takes a couple (laughs) to say like, look, our program is not a transfer destination. Maybe we've had a coaching change. Maybe we went three and nine last year. Um, we got some kids locally, or maybe we've already got some kids on the hook who, you know, we could get a visit from, or we could be in their top five, or we could be a hat on the table, but there's no way they're actually coming here. Let's just pull all our money and make sure they come here <laughs> in this class. But then you got to keep those guys. Yes. You got to commit to them in year two and year three. And yep. what if they don't play? And so, yeah, I just, I think that there has been, and I don't even know if it's a correction because I don't know how many people were doing it in the first place, but I do think that there's been, a correction, at least in in the perception that like recruits are getting a ton of money out of high school. And I think recruits are also smart enough by and large, smarter than people maybe give them credit for to know that the school offering the biggest check might not be the best fit for them long-term. And if they have the right people advising them, it's like, look, you're going to make way more money in the NFL. If you go play for a head coach or an offensive coordinator or in an offensive scheme who has like, proven to be be a developer of nfl talent if you're a quarterback or you know if you play defense like this school turns out edge rushers or cornerbacks or linebackers or whatever like crazy you're going to be playing for this really experienced position coach and you're still probably going to get some money wherever that school is so isn't that maybe the better play for your future than taking the absolute most money you can right now and i think I don't know. I just, I think being a college football player is so hard and it's such a time commitment and such an energy commitment. And you got to be so all in on it that I think guys are realizing it's, it's not worth it to make the most money somewhere where like your day to day isn't the right fit for you. Like I, I forget when it was, but the athletic talked to anonymously talked to a bunch of players um, at one of the like elite camps maybe last year was when I was, when I was still there and asked them like how big of a factor NIL was in their recruitment. And it was one of the bigger takeaways from that story was just like how few of them said it was a really big deal Mm -hmm. where they were like, yeah, it's nice. It came up. I asked about it. We talked about it, but I didn't sign with the school that offered me the most money. Mm -hmm. I had, I had someone on the phone with me offering me this, you know, six figures to sign, to flip to them. And I didn't because you know, X, Y, and Z, right? Like, it's still going to come down to relationships. Um, but like I do, it, it, NIL is more of a box to check, right? Like I need to know if I come here, you've got a structure in place and I'm, I'm going to get paid if I produce, or I'm going to get paid something starting out and I can earn more. And you know, you can't just, you can't be a non-player, but I, I do think it's reached a point where I, I don't know that, that your average four-star recruit is expecting a, a big old check to be part of his official visit or anything. What if he's baby grunk? Oh, God, I don't even want to talk about Baby Gronk. What about Baby Gronk? What about the Riz God, Baby Gronk? (laughs) It's a 10-year-old, dude. 10. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking about 10-year-olds. Do you see which school his dad said offered him a scholarship? Uh, Arizona. That's correct. The Fighting Fishes. Is that just because he calls himself Baby Gronk? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I have no what, idea. What is what is Gronk like about him? I think his dad picked the most famous sort of football name. Um, uh, or, or maybe that he's bigger than everybody else. So I don't know. That makes, that makes sense why Arizona would be. Uh, would be I guess. Yeah. Like, yeah, the, the whole thing. It's 10. The reason, so I, I, 10. I, read what, I read what you wrote about it. And the reason I don't want to talk about it is just because I agree with your take, which is that you it's the whole thing is so silly and it makes me cringe seeing it. But any discussion of that is begging on a 10 year old kid. Yep, That's correct. So I kind of I just I'm just like, you know what? 
I don't, there are elements of this I don't like, but this 10 year old kid already has achieved a platform that is far more likely to be a detriment to him long-term than, than a benefit, I think. Um, and I don't want to, I just don't want to add to that, even in our own tiny little slice of, of the internet here, such as it is. Yeah. I've got, I've got three words. Well, I guess it's four words. Cause one of these is a, is a two word phrase. Three different things that people can say that are an immediate tip off that I'm going to be annoyed beyond belief by the way that they're looking at things. And that is if they talk about my platform, they use the word narrative or, or discuss my team. I'm going to talk about it with my team, meaning they're marketing people, not their teammates. Like if you're going to talk about my team and it's the guys oh, yeah. that you, you play with, that, that's fine. But it's like, I, it's something I talked over with my team and we decided, it's like, what? Your team? What are you talking about? Like the, the people you pay to do stuff for you, that's not your team. Those are your employees. Like the people that you work with, those are your co- coworkers. It's not a team. It's not a team. And, I enjoy and use of team by uh, LinkedIn people. Yes. Uh, I, you know, it's, it's usually like middle managers or director level people who are like, yeah, um, I, had a great, I had a really inspiring meeting with my team this morning. I can't take that stuff. <laughs> like, where I'm like, it's not a team. Like it, a team denotes no. like like that there's there there's a process for being assembled. People volunteer to be on this team. Like you're ch- it, you're talking about a work a work group. You're not talking about a team. Yeah, I, it uh, drives Are me. And then preparing the, for a pickleball tournament. Like- <laughs> just just the different platforms you have. Like platform really means like social media accounts, a YouTube channel, like. It used to be a platform was actually sort of a a, a a media entity. Now it just means you upload stuff. Like that's that's not a platform. Like it's it's an account. It's your Twitter account. It's not a platform. Oh God. I love my. You know what? My favorite platform of mine is on Instagram, where I I have ninety six followers, despite not having a profile picture or ever having posted a single thing. <laughs> and I'm just trying to get to a hundred. I was I was on a disappointed people. Yeah, I was on a I was on a it was a web conference last night about how to get people interested in publishing your book. It's through I go to I work I have a shared workspace here in New York City and it was a really great seminar. It included a couple of literary agents, it included someone who's kind of a writing coach and teaches classes on it. But the literary agent, um, <laughs> one of her things, it was so funny because she goes, it's really best if the literary agent finds you. And then she points out, there's there's one that I look at, like we look all the time on Instagram and I'm like, what the hell? I don't have an Instagram. Maybe that's why no instant <laughs> like literary agents are follow- finding me because I don't have an Instagram account. You got to be hopping on the gram. There you go. Ugh. <laughs> You gotta fire it up. <laughs> I do. Yeah. So, so that was. I spent this morning looking at it, like Instagram for authors. <laughs> like, what do you do? Do you post? Do you post your your opening line on your Instagram? Here's the first line of this book you're gonna want to buy. <laughs> it's just like sixty three photos of, of manuscripts. What? what the hell? Here's me typing. Burr, 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 burr. <laughs> pictures of books oh my god uh, should we close out with ian we should uh ian mcfarland is a wonderful friend of our program he's also an incredibly insightful business person and he's someone that it's worth talking to if you've got questions um or challenges that you're dealing with especially as it relates to salesforce whether it's looking for executives to help you oversee an expansion of sales opportunities. Maybe you want somebody to handle that entirely, or you just got some questions about a product that you think might work. It is always worth a conversation with Ian McFarland, ipmcfarland.com. And here is Ian with this week's question. Good morning, guys. Hope you enjoyed your time off and got some much due rest. Very basic question this morning. What the heck is happening with the University of Washington football team right now. And I'm not talking about some high level state of the program. I'm talking about what is actually happening with the football team right now. 
we know the players come in for summer session. I don't think we understand what that means academically or in terms of rigor. We know that they're in the weight room and we hear all the time that the strength coach is the second most important coach on any college football team because they have that additional access access. I don't think I believe that, but so it goes. And then we know there are player led workouts, but beyond the quarterbacks, receivers and corners, I'm not really sure what that consists of. Any enlightenment you can offer? Danny, you're going to be absolutely no help here. But Christian, any enlightenment you can offer as we head into camp in, what, five or six weeks? Hope you all are well. Be good. It's a good question. Um, and a reminder that, like, there, there is a lot of perfunctory stuff that happens in college football that we, we kind of just take for granted and you don't see it and don't think to ask about it. I don't have a ton of detail for you, Ian, aside from what you summarized. I mean, guys are always lifting and running and, and you mentioned player led workouts. Um, I think the coaches give them a pretty good, uh, outline of what those should look like. I know ahead of their first season, Ryan Grubb talked about how in, in spring, they split reps evenly between Penix, Heward and Dylan Morris, and that they were going to do that in the fall and that, that was happening in, in PRPs too. So I think they have, um, there's some oversight, you know, obviously they can't be there, but some oversight from coaches as far as, as how those should go. I don't know what, you know, I, I've heard edge rushers and linebackers and O linemen, for example, I think like the, the O line will do, um, one-on-ones against the D line or the, the edge rushers will be out there working on different techniques. I remember Ryan Bowman, you know, talking about taking a, a group of guys out to the field and, um, you know, whether it's something that the coaches had already emphasized or that the, uh, a technique or a skill that they had been working on in spring, trying to carry it over into the summer, or maybe something that they saw on film watching, you know, some of their favorite players at their position in the NFL, whatever it is, using the summer, uh, working with each other, you know, kind of trying to, to maybe add something to your game that way. As far as like the structure though, you know, where do they have to be? What's their, their schedule like? You know, I don't know. Um, we we know that the incoming freshmen, so this 2023 class, who weren't already on campus in the spring, um, just got here and started the, the LEAP program, which is um, an academic program for all incoming freshman athletes to sort of get acclimated to the, the rigors of college life while also going through workouts for the first time so that when fall quarter comes around, that's not their first experience with school at the university of Washington and being a college student. Um, you know, I don't know what the, the course credit load is like for returning players who are taking summer session. Um, I, I would imagine it might vary. It might depend on individual, you know, graduation timelines and goals and those sorts of things. But, um, I, I would summarize it at a high level as it's a lot of running and lifting, a lot of running and lifting and, and one-on-one work quarterbacks throw into receivers. I'm sure, you know, at individual meetings at the end of spring that the coaching staff has with each player, I would guess part of what they talk about is, you know, here's what you could do this summer. Here's what we'd like you to see, get better at this summer. You know, here are some skills, you know, we'd like to see more refined when you show up for the first day of fall camp. So uh, I would imagine everybody on an individual basis is going through the summer with those sorts of things in mind. But um, I, I don't, uh, you know, having not actually like been out there with them during a summer workout, I, I, uh, I got to keep it pretty high level myself. What's, what's Danny's zero input here? My zero input would be that when you have a team in which so many players have opted to come back for a season in which not that they where they could have they could have opted to go into the NFL when you have as many guys who would have been drafted as Washington had opt to come back including some guys who might have been drafted maybe if they come out but decided to come back that it sets the table it like there's a pretty high bar for involvement from the rest of the team because there's it reflects a desire to be there or a belief in what can happen in this season. There was in the in the year 
that the Seahawks, it was before they won the Super Bowl. Like the highest level of offseason involvement that I ever saw on the Seahawks was after the 2012 season. That's the one they, 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 they finish strong. They come within 30 seconds of making the NFC championship game. They lose in Atlanta. And the amount of, whether you want to call it buy-in or what it was, of those guys believing in the potential of that team. Because off-season programs typically reflect, like the enthusiasm in them reflects the amount of opportunity the players see in front of them. Um, and, and you will have guys that come, come together after a particularly disappointing season. But when you get the most is when th- your best players come in with the feeling of like, I've got something that I think we can accomplish this season and this is this is our this is our best our only shot to do this. Um, I I think it's I think it's a little tougher even when you have guys that are stepping into new leadership roles. Like say you had a new starting quarterback, he, that's his opportunity to sort of show the sway he has or get have players see him as a leader. This is different, man. Like Penix is the guy that it, it orbits around, right? Like everybody everybody saw what happened last year, and so I think. In, in in off seasons like this, you get such a high standard because all of the young guys that are looking to have an opportunity to participate this season know that they've got to improve if they're going to break into the playing rotation. If they're going to move their way up the food chain, that it's going to take them working harder in the off season. So that's my, with with no eyes on it, that's my take. I think there's an element too of like making sure you don't wear yourself out before fall camp. Yeah. Uh, especially yeah. for some of these upperclassmen who've played a lot of football and maybe managed injuries last year. But it's a it's a balance with getting your body ready for the rigors of, of fall camp and the season too. So that might be uh, yeah, maybe um, it's maybe uh, maybe a good story idea. What is the what is the summer like? Christian Christian's gonna be on the phone. Now what is it that you'd say you guys do here in the summer? We put the 45 pound plates on the bar and we push it up and down a bunch of times. I already explained this. Oh, dude. Uh, have you watched? Did you watch the first extraction movie with Thor in it? It's on Netflix. No. no. Are you a, are you a ridiculous action movie guy? Um, I've seen a few, not, not super into the genre. Genre. Oh, extraction two. I watched last night. Phenomenal. Like, just upper tier and there is a fight in a weight room that has some of the most creative executions that I've ever seen. One of them involves uh like one of those leg presses where you can just sit there and stack up plates because and and then it's like at a 45 degree angle or so and you push it yeah. against. Yeah, there is a lot of weight on it and and Thor kicks the little lever that's holding it and it goes down and crunches a dude pretty good which was gnarly also a treadmill was used in which thor turns on the treadmill punches a guy a couple times then chucks him onto the treadmill which is now running at full speed and the treadmill shoots him out through a, a plate of glass it was pretty phenomenal um yeah man extraction too if you're into uh, ridiculous big budget action movies is is pretty phenomenal. We have three helicopters shot down out of the sky. Um, there is a murder with a pitchfork uh, by a guy who's hard of hearing, which is which is pretty fantastic. Like there's there's just there's a lot going on. Was uh was the subject extracted? The I don't, sub. I don't want you to give away a spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> there are some complications in the extraction because one of the people that is extracted turns out decided he did not want to be extracted from uh it's also set in georgia like eastern europe not 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 atlanta not not down in in, in the state but i always i was calling them like the georgian bulldogs like when my wife was checking in like the georgian bulldogs are hot on their tail here so how many are there this is the second one but there's going to be a third one that was clearly said yeah my my wife said she goes didn't they already have this movie i was like yeah didn't he die i'm like no 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 he just fell into the water. And like yeah, once yeah. you didn't see him come up dead, you knew there was going to be another one. It's like this wasn't quite like Bourne, where Bourne's in the water motionless and then he just starts swimming as the music starts playing, but it was close. Uh, my wife and I used to watch the show Blacklist. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a good show. 
It, 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 it kind of is. It's, it's as good as a bad show can be, is how I would put it. Mm-hmm. In that, like, in the writing, you know, there's just so many, like, CSI Miami-ish, like, cutscenes, like, zinger, one-liner type. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, the CSI Miami is phenomenal. Bad the time acting. to lose your head. <laughs> like, just leans into that guitar. Like Michael Scott in uh, <laughs> Threat Level Midnight. Yeah. His are, it, five. <laughs> His are... I guess that's one way to disarm the subject. <laughs> uh, James, it's funny because like James Spader is an outstanding actor and then everybody else in it is like terrible Um, and we stopped watching i mean it just got ridiculous we stopped watching but one of my favorite themes of the show is that nobody was like none of the main characters were ever dead it it appeared that they'd be dead sometimes their death was fake sometimes they had a but it was like to the point where anytime someone actually died you were like all right when when are they going to resurface like three episodes from now so we gave up on it. Uh, it might still be on the DVR, but uh, yeah, Blacklist is like we were we were enough into it that I felt like I wanted to keep watching because I just wanted to know what happened. But it, it became apparent it was never going to end. Um, like we're, we'll all be dead a hundred years from now, and they'll still be making new episodes of the Blacklist. So the other show, like that, one of the only like series I've ever quit on and and just was like like, this is so terrible i can't watch this anymore i'm just gonna pull up the wikipedia page and read the plot synopsis for the rest of it just to know how it ends (laughs) with sons of anarchy (laughs) which gets so much love and so many people love sons of anarchy that show sucks it's (laughs) so bad it's so stupid the acting is horrible the writing is simple and it's just all these guys do is mess up. It's the worst <laughs> motorcycle club ever. They're not good at anything. They've committed themselves to this life of crime, and all they ever have are problems. It wouldn't be a TV show if it wasn't whatever. But um, I get yeah, I had to give up on Sons of Anarchy. I was, it eventually, it was just okay. This is so stupid. They're running out of like ridiculous things to happen. I'm just gonna read how this thing ends now. I've tried at several different points to get into Sons of Anarchy because it seems like a show that I should like, right? Like, there, it hits a lot of the notes. Uh, I like shows that are oriented on criminals. Uh, I like, like, secret clubs. I don't mind terrible dialogue. Um, I like sort of what I consider to be uh, problematic and threadbare versions of masculinity, and guys trying to talk to each other about being men, like all of those things, like it seems, and I could never get into it. Like, I just, I just could never, I, I've never been able to get into that show. Yeah. Um, I sought it out in search of a, uh, a Breaking Bad-esque fix. Mm-hmm. Breaking Bad had ended and, you know, it's like you said, it's similar. It's centered around organized crime and, and there's a lot of different, characters and yeah i don't know the first few episodes were like yeah all right and it slowly just devolved into something i did not want to watch did you read the story this week about the spy like the russian attempt to kill a spy on u.s soil no so it was in the new york times and um it's kind of a terrifying story at first in which basically russia greenlit the execution of a russian defector in on u.s soil and it was it was characterized as like hey putin's just thrown out all the rules and as i was reading it i was like it's really funny because spycraft is kind of like baseball's unwritten rules like all these people all these countries spy on each other but there's a certain accepted like if your spy gets caught how long does he stay in jail you trade him for other spies that have been caught like there's there's a there's an agreed upon set of recriminations and that it was the premise was like, hey, Putin's thrown all those out. Like he's now willing when a guy defects, he's willing to kill someone on U.S. soil. He killed a guy on British. Soil. And, and then they, they even have the colonel whose name it was that was developing these poisons that would be deployed. So you're like, as I was reading it, I was like, whoa, 
Putin's just 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 going to poison people on U.S. soil now. That seems really aggressive. And then you read the story. First of all, the guy who he was trying to poison, who's this defector, who basically when he defected, Putin said like made it clear that like Russia was really angry with him. He was living under his own name in Miami. <laughs> <laughs> I, well. I, I, I don't know exactly how top secret that is. Then the second part is the way the plot got foiled to poison this guy is that the Russians got some doctor from Latin America, I believe it was from Mexico, leveraged him because he had a second wife who was living in Russia, basically saying, hey, you want to go ahead and cooperate with us on this? We'll make things easier for your second wife who lives in Russia. He goes and they, what they, we want you to get a picture of his car with the license plate of this, this defector. The doctor goes into a secure, like, resident, like a closed neighborhood, uh, gated community, follows, like, tailgates the, the car in front of him into it. So security is like, what the hell? You can't do that. While security is harassing him, his wife, I presume the one who doesn't live in Russia, runs over and takes a picture of the the defector's license plate comes back they end up leaving but it's all on security cam so they have the the rental car and they figure they catch him as he's trying to leave the country and find a picture of the car with the license plate on his phone it's like these are the worst spies ever like these guys are idiots like so this whole like oh putin's gonna green light like the assassinations on usa like these guys are morons that sounds like quite the tale, doesn't it, New York Times? <laughs> it was, yeah. I don't know if I really needed to say that. Did you fly at all during your week off, Christian? <laughs> I did. Did you find on your way back that you had a question for police officers? How the f*** do I get to Longview? I don't know. How do I get to Longview? Hey, if I spent $2,000 for a flight, round trip, from Longview to Medford, from Medford back to Longview, why the f***? I thought about that gentleman a number of times, particularly when we boarded our flight to San Francisco uh, and then had to get off the plane because of a mechanical issue. <laughs> oh, okay. oh yeah. <laughs> because of a baby. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. We, uh, we, we would have endured the baby. Um, put on a, on a, a flight with a different aircraft delayed by two hours and so we did indeed abscond to uh, a liquor bar in the end gates shout out to skillet i had did a couple you, of had a couple of mimosas a, while we waited oh is a mimosa you didn't go fine i i would have much rather uh, not had the mimosas and taken off on time but well you also could have had a different kind of beverage you want to, Listen, this is why that's why I stopped at two. I, I had I had that gentleman's voice in the back of my head. Like, you know, three margaritas were enough for this this man to uh berate a gate agent, so I'm not gonna do that. Why do you have a problem with that? And you have a liquor board in this airport you uh, a lot of uh, a lot of 2024 recruits and their and their families walking past the the liquor bars and and restaurants and gift shops and getting on airplanes and traveling to Seattle this week and this weekend. Should I be worried that there's we're down to one committed recruit? Right? Is that one publicly at at present? Yes. Should I be worried about that? Um, if they don't have a reasonable hit rate on the guys who are visiting this June this month. Then yes, like if they don't, if they don't get, I'll say double and and I don't mean like by the end of the month, all these guys are going to be in the boat. I just mean like of the guys who have visited and are visiting this month, if they don't land at least like eight to 10 of them, and maybe, maybe it's even more than that. But if, if they don't land at least eight to 10 of the guys who are visiting this month, I would say there'd be reason to be concerned because I don't know that there's a lot of plan A guys that they haven't had in for a visit yet there's a maybe a couple and certain guys emerge but um the plan i think was always this would be a big visit month especially these two you know this last weekend and this i mean there's going to be 20 guys on campus throughout this week 
so I, the plan was always that that just like last year um they they'd kind of initiate a wave of commitments with some june visits i don't know that they can expect as many like on the heels of of the visits like they got last year and some guys committed on their trip some guys committed like that following week certainly by the end of the month they were up into double digits but i i think it's it's sort of going according to plan aside from some of the decommitments i don't know that um the coaching staff saw like ej kamenong or landon bell as like huge losses or, or or surprising losses at least and those guys were looking around they'd scheduled other visits you know it kind of is what it is but um if they don't close on uh, a good number of guys they're bringing in this month then it's definitely definitely time to be concerned who's their closer is DeBoer the closer i mean i think that's typically the role of the the head coach yeah um otherwise it's just by position I yeah. think Jamarcus, Jamarcus Shepard has proven to be a pretty good closer. I mean, they got a couple mm-hmm. of four-star guys, a receiver in the, the last class, um, a couple of others coming in on trips, one get, you know, one last weekend, another this weekend, who I think they'd really like to have. Um, but, yeah, I think you hope that your your head coach kind of fills that role if it needs to be filled. But, you know, I, I think modern-day recruiting, it's it's really just about how, how good of a relationship can each position coach build with the guys he's recruiting at, at his position and – you know, can they close on an individual basis? Oh, keep my eyes peeled. I saw Oregon fans starting to give uh, Washington fans a bit of a hard time on Twitter over there. They're the, doing very well. They got a lot of guys committed. So it, the score, the scoreboard is in favor of the Ducks in a big way right now, for sure. It's good to have you, you back, like you, Christian. You look like you don't like that. I, I'm indifferent to, I, I just, I try, I'm indifferent to it. Um, I think different schools do it differently. I, and I'm still trying to figure out like exactly how Kalen DeBoer's like, how wide is the net that he casts? It looks like he's going to be fairly aggressive with the transfer portal. I don't get caught up at all in the recruits you have committed by a certain date. Um, I just don't because I think especially when, this is going to be DeBoer's second year. It's just, it's too early to start jumping to conclusions about what this means for the caliber of, of recruit he's going to get. Look, I thought Jimmy Lake was going to be one of the best recruiting head coaches there was. Like the, 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 the secondary guys that they landed while he was this, well, before he became head coach, I thought they were going to just be monsters. And that turned out to pretty much be the opposite. Like he, he wasn't, he wasn't a great recruiter. Um, at least I don't think he was. Uh, yeah, I think the, I think the numbers bear that out. What's certainly what's happened to their uh, their twenty twenty one class. Um, but take it take it from Danny. Put away your jump to conclusion mats. Roll them up. Store them in the closet. Might get them back out next week. We'll see. Maybe next week we'll be. Be talking about how this weekend went, uh, where Washington recruiting goes from here, and uh, probably still lack of consummation on the Pac-12 media deal front. But you never know. Summer wears on. We'll be inside of a month till media day. Um, we will find something to talk to you about next week. Take care until then. Pod. 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 Oh.